0: welcome to the executive appeal, a show that convenes the world's most powerful and successful leaders to share mentoring and career advancement advice to help you successfully transition into senior level executive positions. I'm your host, Alex Trumbull, award winning speaker, author and leadership expert with over a decade of experience coaching and advising some of our nation's most senior level government leaders. So if you're ready to reach your goals, let's get started. Hello, everyone. My name is Alex Trumbull, and this is the Executive Pill Podcast. As you know, this show, along with all of my speaking, coaching, and consulting services, are laser-focused on helping organizations prepare high-performing leaders from all backgrounds to successfully transition to and excel in VP and senior VP-level executive-level positions. And if you and your organization are serious about developing diverse and highly effective executive leadership teams, one, you're in the right place. And two, I encourage you to visit alextrimble.com or reach out to me at Trimble at alextrimble. <laughs> I like saying my name, team at alextrimble.com. So we can discuss how we can work together to help you and your organization reach its DEI and leadership development goals. Finally, the executive pill is now one of the top 5% most popular shows in the world, and this didn't happen by accident. It was because of you that we are in this situation and it will be you who determines the continued success of the show. So please, if you enjoy this content and the advice and strategies our guest provides, we ask you to do us a favor, please click that like button, please click the subscribe button, and make sure you share your thoughts and ideas in the comments section. Now, with no further ado, let me say, today is a good day. See, today we have the wonderful, the phenomenal, the exciting Sanan Iradin. Oh man, we're going to see how I messed that one up. So Sanan <laughs> is a Turkish-American entrepreneur based in Washington, D.C., holding his bachelor's in software engineering and two master's degrees in international relations and strategic cyber operations and informational management, This man is a juggernaut in his industry. See, Sanan runs cybersecurity and software development startups in both Istanbul as well as Washington, D.C., developing infrastructure for training cyber operators in cyber intelligence, offensive and defensive cyber operations. He also serves on the NATO Center of Excellence Defense Against Terrorism, As an academic advisor and as an instructor, finally, Sinan also continues his second trap diplomacy efforts as a senior fellow at the Cybersecurity Forum Initiative in the United States. But no further ado, (laughs) what's going on, brother?
1: Hey, Alex, how are you?
0: Man, I'm living the life. I'm trying to remember all these phenomenal things you do. Like that's what I.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, thank you for the kind introduction, man. Thank you. No,
0: brother. I mean, seriously, one, you are very welcome. You're very welcome. And again, I, I really appreciate the time that you and I get to spend together. We met each other when we were in Aspen at the, uh, the Aspen Institute. If yep. I can ask before we get going, what got you into the Aspen Institute Socrates program?
1: There's a short answer. There's a long answer. Short answer is Cordell Carter. You ah. <laughs> <laughs> got me in when we, are, we were having a lunch in Istanbul. And then he said, "Like, why would you not join us? You know, in Aspen." So, like, okay, sign me up. And I guess I was the fastest uh, enrolled person in the history of Aspen to any program. It took like a, you know thirty seconds for him to uh, get me in. So that was it.
0: So one, I just think that's so freaking cool. Cordell is freaking ridiculous, um, and the fact that you're being, oh yeah, we are having a conversation, Esteban. You know, like that. That's just pretty freaking awesome, and. <laughs> i i the interesting part is like how intentional he is about bringing leaders from literally all around the world together to have these very interesting conversations on very important topics. Which topic were you diving into uh when we were in aspen together uh, privacy and surveillance um and can I ask why were you interested in privacy and surveillance
1: <laughs> uh, because it's part of the um, like a trade-off between security and uh, privacy, mm-hmm. uh, which is always the ethical dilemma in uh, national security uh, operations. And since I'm coming from a national security background, especially with cyber operations, I thought it would be nice uh, to um, see how other people think because I'm more on the security side of things and I was expecting uh, Aspen people to be on more of the privacy side. I'm always trying to balance things because I need to you know, stay in touch with the reality. Aside from developing stuff that helps officials, we need to also be uh, careful uh, about the boundaries, you know, these ethical boundaries that we are actually trying to you know, keep up with.
0: So, here in lies the challenge, which you talked about. There's a lot of conversation about this um, outside of Aspen. It's just in the world right now. Um, as we have more threats all across the world, right? There's threats all across the world. And I think you know more than most of us, just given the work that you do in cybersecurity um, and, and you work around terrorism and so on and so forth. Where is that line between? Hey, we're doing this. We need to see this information um, versus, hey, like this is this is crossing the line of of privacy. I I don't want you to know everything about me.
1: It's it's a really hard question. Uh, I like it, but it's really not. I mean, nobody's uh, totally qualified to answer that question. But um, I believe uh, it depends on the circumstances, and it depends on the culture. Uh, Not every culture accepts uh the same uh conditions or you know limits um things might be different in asia uh it might be different in uh north america different in south america different in europe and i don't think there's one size fits all uh for this uh but i'm i would like to give this example that i love Uh, you know back in the day there wasn't any security uh checks when you were boarding your plane Mm -hmm. and that was the norm and then now we have a lot of extensive checks when you're boarding a plane and these checks differ from country to country. It's not the same when you're traveling to a certain country or the other one. And, you know, if you ask a mother or a father which line, you know, this is a hypothetical, mm-hmm. which line you're, you would like your kid to go through through that, you know, uh, no security checks line or the one that we have today. I believe most Parents would want their kids to go through the extensive security search line because they would know their kid will be safer in a plane like that. So that's a trade-off people need to make, you know, make a decision about. Uh, but eventually the governments cannot just ask every single individual and create different lines for everybody. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a common sense issue, uh, but more often than you know, uh, not, um, we learn our lessons after something bad happens yeah. and then come up with uh, precautions uh, not to repeat the same mistake. So mm. if we keep having terrorist attacks, we will, that means we are not doing enough. And then the privacy people will need to, you know, back a little bit and leave some room for the security people. If it's not happening that much, maybe we can, we can lose on that. It's, it's, like a, it's going to be like a change all the time. It won't be the same forever.
0: You know, you and I are watching this. We were talking about the last time we met up, we were talking about this show called Black Mirror, and there's an episode on Black Mirror where there was a society, when the society basically has a, um, a grade for everyone in society, based on how many likes or how many stars you get, you get access to certain things within that society. Um, and this is, you know, it's a quote unquote show, right? It's like a hypothetical show. But I think that is already starting to happen across the world in certain places where there is more security watching um, how people are interacting and giving points. Um, and maybe not literally points, but, you know, um, rewarding good behavior, good citizenship behavior. A- have you been have you seen that? What, what does that even look like?
1: I mean, I'm I haven't spent time on it, but I have heard that China is implementing certain uh, norms for good citizens and bad citizens and they are trying to incentivize certain behavior which is good in their norms in their culture it might not be the same in europe europe or united states but in their culture there are certain things that they accept as good and there are certain things they accept as bad so the problem is they keep recording everything in order to give you Mm. a grade so as long as these recordings are kept safe and secure and only used for the purpose they're collected, and the the people have the opportunity to opt out, I don't see a problem with that. But if you have none of these things, and you believe your government will be using that against you, that's a problem. We incentivize people to do certain things, you know, uh, which is good for the society all the time. And that's, you know, if it's done, you know, in a reasonable way, I guess... That's beneficial to the rest of the society, but if it's like sugarcoated like that, and you claim mm-hmm. you are incentivizing people by collecting this data and processing it, but doing something, having a you know uh, alternative agenda behind their backs, that's not okay.
0: Well, so uh, you, you you broached that that large question, which we're always thinking about as leaders, especially leaders of organizations, is trust, right? you are collecting data collecting information because the hope is you're going to do something good with that information something to lower prices something to keep us safe something whatever it may be you are meant to do something good and now here's the challenge is that as you even if you are doing the right thing or you plan or intend to do the right thing um there's always the risk of cyber hacks right you know we're from my understanding, I'm not an expert in this area, but I do love, I love consuming information. That's why I can have these conversations with leaders such as yourself. Um, I hear that we're not too far off from having quantum computing, right? From having, well, you know, technically speaking, right? And we, you know, you see what's going on with AI. And I feel like there is a, there's a chance that even the most secure data and meant for the right, the right reasons, the right, the right like, efforts, like again, real quick example, um, there are tools out there where it's literally a ring. You can wear a ring on your finger and it will collect information about you, your body, consistently so it can feed it to your your physician. And now they can monitor your health, you know, second by second and and have a real understanding of who you are and where you are when you go with that yearly check-in versus you just saying, I feel like this hurts. But the again, the risk is always that someone gets through the system and then they can use that that information against you or somehow.
1: So there are a couple of points to dissect here. Uh, we already have personal identifi- identifiable information in the old school systems. You have your health records. You have everything that you are purchasing It's on record. Uh, what you say, if you do it in mass scale, it creates a you know uh, bigger effect. Obviously, it's not linear. You know, it's much bigger than that. So the problem, uh, you know, the trade-off with data is how granular it is, and it mm. is like too granular, and if it has too much information, it's more valuable, because then it's more accurate. And accuracy is something we want uh, to achieve efficiency and effectiveness. So the whole idea of collecting data is to process it to serve both the customers and the manufacturers or service providers to optimize their processes. If we limit that, it will be a mediocre service. I don't know if you want that. But... Mm -hmm. The more personally identifiable the information is, the more it's prone to misuse or targeting people or targeting social, certain social um, groups or races or mm-hmm. genders or whatever you can think of as you can classify. Obviously, having a name you know, on, a, on a block of data, it's the, it's the most extreme that we can think of. You can't anonymize data to protect people, and you do not keep records of the actual names of the people because you know we will be hacked eventually. Even the, even the hardest government organizations are hacked, and um, that's an accept, that's, an, that's a risk that we know that we have, and we know there is no chance that we can um, keep it at a zero zero uh, percentage. So then we know it will be hacked. So the question is, what's the impact of every classification of data and how much do you want to give up give up from your accuracy and efficiency in order to protect what kind of where do you draw the line yeah what's what's the uh granularity of data that you're collecting that you're accepting for somebody else to uh pack into
0: again this is why these are these are difficult questions right i i, I was talking to a, a mentor of mine the other day and she was asking me if I was interested in doing the um, was like 23andMe, Ancestry, whatever. And I was like, oh, no, I mean, I'm interested in it, but I've never done it because I, I just don't want another organization to have that much data on me to be tracked and whatnot. And she was like, yeah, nah. <laughs> she works for a military organization. She's like, they, they got your information already. Like <laughs> the fact that you can go on, I can go buy something at Safeway and 10 minutes later get a, a commercial on my Facebook page for, for syrup when I just bought pancake batter. Um, you know, like you said, they, I, I use my cart, which means they, they know exactly where I've been, what I've bought and so on and so forth. I guess the, uh, to a large extent, there's so much information that's already
1: out there, right? So people give out information as a po- part of the uh, new uh, social norms you know, because we have social media and everything and you want to share stuff with your friends as a part of being human or the new normal for being human. So that's something uh, that I I don't think governments can manage. You cannot, other other than like oppressive regimes. Uh, But um, as a person, you are liable for what you are doing, for your decisions. If you do something uh, that's jeopardizing somebody else's you know, livelihood or something offensive, you are liable. So when you are sharing information that doesn't only hurt you once it's misused, but hurt others as well, such as your the organization that you are working uh, in, then you should be more careful. Even if you don't care, your employers would care because you know it's it's these you know the weak links uh, in the chain that always are attacked first and eventually compromised and there's a there's a escalation in access levels and eventually you might not be the target your boss might be the target you being not careful might lead to your organization being compromised and this is not something a person uh would care but the corporations the corporate entities needs to care more and tell their employees you will either be careful with this thing or that will be consequences And it's their choice to work there or not. So individuals are not, I mean, we we cannot push anything on individuals, except we can have terms, we can have requirements as, you know, government entities or private entities that if you want to work here, you need to adhere to these standards. And then people will eventually have it as a normal in their lifestyle. It's not going to be a push down from the government to every citizen regardless of what they do, because that will be crazy. I wouldn't want to see something like that. I'm sure all of the privacy folks are jumping up and down. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you want to work at a certain organization, the requirements might be different than the other organization, you need to respect that. And I believe that's how we will have a balance.
0: Are you ready to bring your DEI efforts to the next level? Introducing Alex Tremble a professional speaker who combines expertise and entertainment to create an unforgettable experience for DEI professionals and organizing staff. With a focus on leadership, mentorship, and relationship building, Alex is dedicated to helping organizations attract, develop, and retain diverse and high qualified leaders. From the 12 pillars of an effective mentoring relationship to
1: the seven must-have leadership skills, Alex provides practical advice that can be immediately implemented. Don't miss out on the opportunity to have Alex at
0: your next event. Contact team at alextrimble.com to book the speaker who will take your organization's diversity and inclusion journey to new heights. You, you mentioned, so you've been talking about the, the, these cyber threats and the reality is, is you and your work, you train cyber operators, again, both offensive and defensive. Um, I really loved it. Like, how do you train cyber operators? Is it like those old movies, like hackers and like that? Like you guys go go to a mall, jack into a phone line and are doing some fun stuff or
1: <laughs> I assume it's safer than that. So I have a vision. I believe. Uh, the term hacker is kind of a offensive term to most people, but it, you understand what we mean when, when I say a hacker. You understand what I'm talking about. So it's, it's it's a catchy phrase, and I guess we will keep using it. But in the next uh, decade or something, it will turn into a profession. It's not just going to be a gimmick. It's, it's going to be a profession like a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, uh, you know, musician. Hackers will be. Being a hacker is going to be a profession. I guess that will be like a board which certifies you to be a, you know, ethical hacker or something. And um, if you want to have a sustainable, healthy ecosystem for this profession, you, you need to create the environment and uh, tools for the people who are interested in that stuff to learn it without incriminating themselves. That's the big catch here. So because 20 years ago, if somebody wanted to learn how to hack things, they needed to hack things, and mm-hmm. it's, it was even if it was not illegal because there were there weren't any laws about that. It was um, intrusive, yeah. and eventually it became illegal. So you had a master and an apprentice, <laughs> and then like you did it. yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it was like a really fine line between you know more going to the dark side. And some people were in because it's it's old school hacking. Uh I wish we had more of that, but um there was a code. Hackers were there for a reason. It was not for financial gains, it was corrupted later on to because they saw they can make a lot of financial gains mm. and cooperate with organized crime organizations or worked as mercenaries for governments or corporate espionage, but before that, way before that, it was some kind of anarchists who wanted to have freedom of information in many ways. I mean, uh, they pirated stuff so that people get, would get free software or stuff. I know it's not uh, reasonable in a capitalist system, but the idea was much more nobler than what today's hackers are, you know, uh, are seeing. Anyways, it's not possible to have something like that. We cannot have one uh, master for each apprentice. We need to have a more streamlined infrastructure to train young kids without pushing them to the underground world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, if they are in the underground world, they are inclined more to make money in illegal means. And once they're in, it's really hard to get out mm-hmm. uh, because we are compromised. Because if you want, even if you want to get out, it's not that easy. So if we start with high schools and you know colleges, universities, uh, which we can provide them the infrastructure, the environment to hack things without hurting any anyone or damaging any systems, without committing any crimes, and have a more centralized uh, apprenticeship uh, stuff through digital means. It would give us a profession for the next generations, and we would know which kid is, which kid has what kind of affinities. Because it's like, I like to say it, like, people keep calling me, so what should my kid uh, study or do to be a good cybersecurity professional? So like, it's 50 shades of cyber. There are like, actually like 50 different, uh, maybe 10 major branches, but every single one of them have sub-branches. I would say we have at least 50 uh, specialties uh, or pathways, you know, uh, for any career. So... And even if you want to do something, you might be better qualified to do something else. Mm -hmm. And no kid knows what that is. I don't even know what it is for every single person that I meet. And in this training environment, we can understand who's better qualified to do certain things because it comes with, again, culture, instincts, uh, the way you grow up, you know, uh, your priorities, your perception, how your mind works. Not every single person is created the same way. I mean, God created us differently, and uh, I believe we need to, you know, work in the field that is best qualified for that we are best qualified for, so we can optimize the results. Again, at some point, you need to be good at what you are doing. It can't be only wishful thinking. And uh, if you have that kind of an infrastructure, yes, we can place you through the right pathway, Mm -hmm. through different, you know, uh, levels of training, in much faster way. Than a four year bachelor's degree plus a two year uh, master's degree and lots of certifications. it would be much faster, much effective. And you would find jobs in the private sector or the government, which is legal <laughs> and get paid <laughs> much faster than you know making a ton of investment on these colleges.
0: you know you know what's funny about that too, is that I think you and I are having this conversation. I had spoke to some uh, some executive leaders. In the education realm um, a few weeks ago. And, you know, we are, my wife and I are having our first child, right? So we're super excited. And Congrats. We're about, Thank you. Thank you for freaking, you know, this, guy, this guy's gonna be awesome, especially because he has some of me and her in it. It's gonna, he's gonna be ridiculous. Um, What's us called? and super handsome. Um, and, you know, it was like, okay, so we invest in a 529 for him. Okay, whether well, we invest in twi- 529, do we expect, you know, what does the college look like? And they were like, look, you know, 18 years from now, there is absolutely no idea what college will look like, um, or if there even will be a college, just how fast technology is moving in, in virtual spaces and in meta and AI and so on and so forth. And so it sounds like it, what you're talking about is, you know, this, there's a strong likelihood that what you're talking about in regards to maybe, again, a different word for hacker, but this becomes a profession that people can do. Whether you're in the city, whether you're in a rural environment, whether you're, you know, out, you know, wherever you're at, as long as you have access to you know, internet and those tools, this will be a profession for some people.
1: Yeah, and, and furthermore, companies or governments, whoever mm. is employing these uh, cybersecurity professionals or hackers, uh, they won't be checking your college diploma. They won't be mm. just checking your certificates, but but that's what they are doing today mostly. Yeah. Uh, but some of them are moving towards checking your skills, actual skills that you can perform and how well you are performing them. Uh, sometimes people got recruited because they show some skill without being like interviewed. They can be even doing something uh, in the gray area. But once they're spotted, you know, they got a job off because they have the skills, not because they have the uh, degrees. Don't get me wrong. I'm doing a PhD also right now, but you know that's a whole different thing. <laughs> you, will, you will always need people with bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs to run a much bigger spectrum of things, but 95% of your workforce needs to do certain functions only. And you need to have some very small percentage of your managers to orchestrate that. And they will obviously get paid more, but what when we are trying to organize a workforce, we are not just talking about the, the top five percent. That's not our biggest concern. There will always be people like uh, who want to be overachievers. You will you will find them no matter what. But uh the other 95%, which is like going to be millions of people, you know, in the coming years, um, uh, you cannot have enough universities, you cannot have enough. Uh, loans to get these people through universities to work in these jobs without making their life miserable paying Mm -hmm. back that loan. And certain cultural groups or races or whatever you call it, they won't have the opportunity to study in these universities. Mm -hmm. And we need everybody. Because you don't know who is smarter than the other if we cannot see. And with these online means, which we call a cyber range, it's like a shooting range. For cyber, you need to play with these, you know, instruments and see how it works. And I'm moving to the other side of this story. The, the organizations that hire will need to test your skills. How, do you know how they will test your skills? They will use the same infrastructure that you're trained on. Mm-hmm. Even better, they will ask the platform which trained you to show them your grades. And then they will understand what you are qualified for. Yeah. So they, I mean, even if you are not trained in a cyber range, they can ask you to do some kind of a, a mission or a homework or some assignment in a cyber range, and then the results will automatically tell them if you are good or not for that position. You don't even need to have an interview. It's, it's just that you know gamified you know environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You do so. And then uh, let's say we have a thousand uh, applicants. Maybe twenty of them get the to top grades. And then maybe then you will interview with them for personal interactions, but that's it. The same thing, you know, like both sides, everybody will be using the same infrastructure. You,
0: you, you make me think, oh, this is so cool. And I, I, I got to throw another question at you really quickly because I, I, got, I got you here, so I got to do it. But really quickly on that topic, there was a, um, a, a leader I was speaking to recently and he was saying how his, I think his friend's son scored like super low on the verbal section of the oh, shoot ACT I believe he like, went one, one of those tests to get into college. So he so he couldn't get in. Um, SATs but SATs, yeah. Um and but on the funny part is that he scored like off the charts on the math section, right? Um the the young man is autistic and so he yes he has the challenge of one area, but he's completely functional in the other. And he was talking about just how outdated some of our testing tools are and how it leaves people who are phenomenal off the table, who could really do some great work for you because they're not, because they're not, quote unquote, average at everything or great at everything. But they're really great in particular skills as what you're talking about in going in there and actually playing with these systems and organizations having the ability to say, hey, you know what, as we have more data moving forward, as we have more AI, as we have... We move into these virtual meta environments and so on and so forth, um, that just means there's more of our stuff is out there. So we have to make sure we have people who can protect us. So having these people on our own staffs who are trained and not only know how to protect, but they can protect better because they actually know how to also attack, um, it just makes sense.
1: Yes, it's like, uh, it's like knowing how to shoot a weapon uh, in order to understand if they are shooting at you, what happens. Mm. If you don't do that it's only like theoretical knowledge and you can be an academic you know in your ivory tower not knowing anything about you know what happens when you have contact with the enemy uh you just need to be in the shoes of the enemy yourself to understand them matter that's why you know the best way to learn how to defend is first understanding how to attack if you haven't hacked anything you don't understand what you're Adversaries are capable of doing or how or how they think. Mm. First of all, you need to understand how they think. That's why we want to teach people how to do offensive cyber for them to understand how to do defensive cyber. And also, obviously, offensive cyber only is legal for the government entities, at least for now. Um, but defensive is for everybody. And teaching people the offensive side is again required to have good defensive cyber operators.
0: You know, again, there's a question I really want to throw by you. Um, so I get to watch you and you like consistently travel in the world and, you know, rubbing elbows with delegates and and doing all that diplomatic stuff. And you just, you just, it's really freaking cool. Again, in your part of NATO, like you've done some you're doing some phenomenal stuff. I have to ask the, 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 the question that everyone who's in this industry probably gets asked. You deal with this, this type of work you deal with terrorism and everything. What keeps you up at night? I, I, I got to ask that question.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, you know, in the risk management, there are levels and you accept certain risks, you know, uh, and what keeps me up at night is that if I accepted the right risks or not, mm. so eventually certain things will happen yeah. and you need to understand Uh, If you can survive it and we make these decisions for our customers as well. And um, I feel responsible, obviously, uh, for the decisions that we're making for our customers. And that's what keeps me awake at night. If I made the right call.
0: That that's that's a cool answer. I don't think I've heard that answer in any of the movies I've watched. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think this is probably why this podcast is so much better than any of those other movies out there. Um, I, I love to know, is there anything that you're working on that you, one that you can share, but that you're just like, this is really cool that I'm I'm working on. Like, I'd, lo- I'd love to sh- talk about this.
1: So I think AI is a term which is misused a lot. People do not understand what actual AI means for actual AI specialists, because, you know, some non-technical people just imagine there's a magic wand and, you know, you just, do so this and then everything happens and it's AI. No, it's not. Uh, there are certain techniques that needs to be involved in order to call it actual AI. And one of the things that we are working on is implementing certain, we are planning on working with that, not, not yet, but that's in our plans, to incorporate this AI modules, which is not our product, but somebody else's but incorporate it into our cyber ranges and to have all of the content that we have in English to be readily available to all languages, all at the same time. Instantly. That's cool. So people don't need to know English to study in your environment, but they can study.
0: That's so cool. Like literally, basically in, any, any content that is created that is put on your platform can instantly be changed to whatever language the consumer speaks.
1: Yes, that's the idea. It won't be perfect, but it, won't, it, it, can, it can't be perfect. But, you know, again, that's a cliche. Uh, perfect is the enemy of good. And there are certain languages that mm-hmm. people speak that I, we will never invest in developing content in this language. That's not feasible. But if you have like 95% accuracy translating them, they will get the gist of it. Like they will yeah. understand what we are talking about.
0: That's so cool. That's so cool, and and I, I wanna I wanna bring up a conversation I think you and I had, and you let me know. Give me a wink if we can't talk about this anymore. Um, we are talking about AI and people's fear of AI becoming um, quote unquote alive, right? And then this is right now my personal opinion. I was we are talking about like how how difficult it will be for AI to become self aware, like oh I'm actually self aware, um, and for me personally I'm not even worried about that um once ai is software you know we'll be gone (laughs) they'll take care of us um but the the question was you know whether ai which is really just i guess answering questions the best it knows how to answer with the information it has um once once we are relying on that information or if if it makes decisions for us once we get to the point where it's making decisions for us that's a scary thing but uh, I'm gonna shut up because maybe you want to continue our conversation. Going,
1: so I guess um, we had like a little chat about this. So I would like to share that with our uh, viewers. Uh, I'm doing a PhD in public policy with a national security specialization, and my thesis will be about AI ethics. So I spent already spent a lot of time uh, researching that. It's not out yet, so I won't give out my ideas, but um, I just wanted to give this as a you know disclaimer um, that what I'm saying comes from academic research. And um, people think the AI that you are talking about, which is super vague, you know, when we say AI, but currently it's not at the point of sentience, I guess, or as I call it, agency. Uh, you know, humans have agency, animals don't. Uh, but animals are also sentient, you know, but there's a difference between that. So AI that we mentioned today uh, is mostly like super advanced tools that humans use and humans make the decisions. At least that's how we imagine (laughs) things. I guess there's an illusion about that. Uh, I don't want to freak out people, but when I'm going to, the the little story I'm going to tell you, uh, you have to think about that. So policies are what people set, right? We decide on certain policies. We decide on certain thresholds, and I don't know how people decide on these things. Most of the time, they're arbitrary. I don't know how a seventy-five percent acceptance rate for some kind of a, you know, uh, collateral damage is acceptable, rather than eighty percent or eighty-five percent. I don't know how they make that determination, but somebody does that eventually. So, and then we try to calculate things about. The outcomes. And since human mind is limited in calculating things at mm-hmm. a certain speed and certain volume, we use tools. You know, humans are uh, animals who make tools. That's the definition. And the most advanced tool that we have made so far is the AI. And, you know, we use AI and computer programs embedded with that to give us sensor data and process it and then come up with analytical uh, assumptions, and, um, and that's good. I like it, you know, it works for everybody. But think about, uh, and I'm not, I'm not I'm, this is just an example. You know, it yeah. can be for anything. But the, the most, you know, uh, catching example is, think about a fighter pilot or some drone operator or UAV, you know, armed UAV operator, trying to decide if he should, or he or she should fire that missile, given the AI's calculations about potential collateral damage. If that collateral damage assessment is below or above certain thresholds, that's a suggestion that he or she should or should not fire. And then, unless there are certain emotional or external factors in play, that operator will listen to the AI based on the AI's calculation. So I'm asking you the question, is the AI making that decision to fire or is that operator making that decision to fire? Yes, the operator has the physical, you know, uh, capability of pushing that button, mm-hmm. But that decision is logically forced on the operator. So the AI is making that decision.
0: Mind blown. When we were when we were talking about that, I was like, oh, my God, you're freaking right, man. I mean, get, then this, this then went down the idea that you and I talked about actually i I posted a video on uh, my youtube channel of asking this question is do we have free will like do we actually as humans have free will and if you think about it from a very logical standpoint i believe there's very there's very little free will actually um just because of you know all the habits that we we do automatically um how we react to our environment how we've been, uh, how we've been conditioned via the experiences that we had when we were kids. Like, there is so much that is just programmed into us that this question of free will is, I think, a a very interesting question to say the least.
1: The question of free will is much older than the AI. It goes all the way back to you know uh, Aristotle and Plato and like you know ancient philosophers. So you know, depending on your worldview, it might change but you know um you know s- religions tell us you know a lot of stories about free will and how we can be a good person or not um but there are certain things that we cannot manage so i guess uh we have some free will and some that's out of our control so it's like a, a superpositioning thing you know like the quantum we are talking about not zero and ones. <laughs> it's a mix of things but i believe um, at least what we accept as free will is at least close to free will as close, close to enough that we accept it.
0: Exactly. I say. <laughs> hey look brother, I know we're starting to run uh, running up against our time. Um I know you gotta jump off and jump on a phone call with the um with the the foreign minister of a, a number of countries and then also you said <laughs> you have to meet with the NATO uh, secretary. Um so look are there any final thoughts, ideas, anything you'd like to share with our audience as we begin to wrap up?
1: Yes, I would like to uh, give a shout out uh, to all the young people that are watching us. I have seen young cyber operators much more successful than the older ones. I'm becoming a dinosaur. What I can do is help the next generations. And they should start from somewhere without self-incriminating themselves. That's... The key because once they do something, you know, maybe uh, out of curiosity uh, to have it quickly and make some gains, they are creating a permanent mark somewhere and it will be tra- traced back. So they should not uh, increment themselves just for learning how to hack things. It's coming. We have cyber ranges and eventually uh, it will be uh, accessible to the masses. <sighs>
0: Basically, what he said: uh, be be cool, stay in school. You know, don't 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 do drugs or the or the IT equivalent of. <laughs> yeah. <exactly.
1: laughs> and one hey. last thing: you don't need to be a software engineer to be a hacker. That that's again, a, a, you know, misunderstanding.
0: I, I I'm a hacker um, as well. Um, not 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 a good one by any means whatsoever. Actually, um, but we can all we can all wish, right? We can all wish. Look, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you to the audience. Thank you, everyone who's participating and listening. If you thought this was a productive conversation, if you've learned from this, look, do me a favor just share your takeaway from this conversation, especially as a leader, as you think about privacy and how you position your organization for these, these coming threats and coming realities in regards to cybersecurity and so on and so forth. And you know where I'm going with this. Look, if you found one bit of advice one nugget that you've said hey this is going to help me be a better person a better leader help me me and my organization be more successful then you know don't just look back reach back bring someone else to the table share this information with them make sure you click the like the subscribe because every time you do this this message goes out to more and more people and if you found it of value i promise you others will find it of value as well so as always i encourage you to stay strong stay positive and definitely Stay moving. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Executive Appeal with Alex Trumble. I invite you to follow The Executive Appeal wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me, your host, Alex Trumble, across all socials or via email for exclusive webinars, courses, and his speaking engagements on continued topics of executive leadership. So until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely
1: stay moving.